0: Well, if you've got a Bible, if you'd open it to Genesis chapter 29, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, there should be one under the chair in front of you, the dark blue hardback uh, book. Uh, we are going to be covering, as, uh, as we've been doing throughout this series in Genesis, a lot of verses at once, Lord willing, and so uh, we'll be skipping around. We won't read everything, but it will hopefully help you to have a Bible open so you can refer to the passages uh, as we are talking about them. Well, Genesis is the first book in the Bible, and as such, it's really foundational for our understanding of everything that comes after it. And since it begins at creation, everything comes after Genesis. Uh, It was written by Moses, and it begins with creation. Uh, Genesis introduces us to God, to the world that he's made, to the human beings that he's placed in this world to bear his image and to reflect his glory. Uh, In Genesis, we've seen mankind rebel against their creator. We've seen humanity descend into sin. We've seen God's promise to send a descendant of Eve who would deliver humanity. And more recently, we've been looking at the history of Abraham and his family. God called to Abraham and promised to make him a great nation. He told him he would give him the land of Canaan, and he'd bless the entire world through these descendants of Abraham. We've seen that this promise was passed on through Abraham to his son, Isaac, the child of promise, and then through Isaac to Jacob, the younger of his twin boys. Uh, Jacob, we saw, was a surprising choice because he was an opportunistic swindler and a cheat. He talked Esau out of his rightful inheritance. He deceived his father into blessing him instead of his older brother. At that point, Esau was understandably fed up and ready to kill him, so we saw last week that Jacob's mother, who favored Jacob over Esau, sent him away to family in a distant land. Last week we saw Jacob fleeing for his life. We saw his meeting with God at a place that he later named Bethel, or House of God. We saw him meet the beautiful Rachel at a well, and then accidentally marry her sister Leah. Uh, We saw his eventual marriage to Rachel as well, and then 14 years of service to their father Laban, his uncle, in order to pay the bride price for his two wives. Now perhaps you're thinking at the end of last week, wait. Isn't being married to two sisters a recipe for all sorts of jealousy and infighting and strife? Well, you're ready for what comes next. Uh, In our passage for this morning, we get a window into the domestic insanity that follows in the wake of Laban's deception and Jacob's marrying of both Leah and Rachel. And so as we think about these events, uh, what I'd like to do is think about three things. First, let's look at Jacob's family. So we'll see that in Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 31, and going down to chapter 30, verse 24, so Jacob's family. Second. Jacob's flocks. So we'll see that in chapter 30, verses 25 to 43. That'll be very brief, but we need to consider it. And then finally, we'll conclude, Lord willing, by looking at Jacob's flight. And that we'll see in all of Genesis chapter 31. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. Jacob's family, Jacob's flocks, and Jacob's flight. So beginning there in chapter 29 with verse 31, we see Jacob's family. So to this point, the narrative has presented Rachel and Leah, these daughters of Laban, these wives of Jacob, in terms of contrast. Leah is older. Rachel is younger. Rachel is beautiful. Leah is not. We saw at the end of our passage last week in verse 30 of chapter 29 that Jacob loves Rachel more than he loves Leah. But beginning in verse 31, we're introduced to yet Another distinction, it says there in Genesis 29, verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, that is, was preferred less than Rachel, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So in a culture where a woman's value was largely determined by her ability to bear children, this, this represents a massive shift in the balance of power in their relationship. Rachel might be beautiful. Rachel might be beloved. But Leah has the children. So predictably there in chapter 30, verse 1, we read that Rachel envied her sister. Right? She was no use. Doubt to, she was no doubt used to being the one who was envied, right? She was the beautiful one. But now her sister has something she doesn't have, and she is jealous. Rachel might have Jacob's love, but Leah has something better. She has the blessing of the Lord. She is the recipient of his compassion. And what follows in the narrative is an account of the birth of a 11 of what would be 13 children of Jacob that are named for us in the Bible. So let's just go quickly through them. There in verses 29, or chapter 29, verses 30 to 35, we read that Leah gave birth to three sons, Reuben, Simeon, and Judah. And the reasons that she gives for choosing those names show that she was desperate for her husband's affection. She was hoping that the, the biggest heartache in her life, the fact that her husband didn't love her, would be resolved through the birth of these children. But ominously there at the end of verse 35, Uh, We read that she wasn't able to have any more children after that, at least for the time being. Now, Rachel, as you can imagine, was not content to be left behind in this competition. And what ensues is something like an arms race involving human beings. And so there in chapter 30, verses 3 and 4, Rachel gives her servant, Bilhah, to her husband, Jacob, so that she can bear children on Rachel's behalf. This was a common practice in that world. We've already seen it with Sarah and her servant, Hagar. It's not one that the Lord sanctioned or endorsed. Again, marriage was created by God to be a lifelong bond between two people, one man and one woman, nothing more, nothing less. But There in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 31, we see that, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 30, we see that Bilhah bears two sons to Jacob. And Rachel names them Dan and Naphtali. Well, now Leah's not content to let Rachel use tricks to catch her from behind, but she can't have any more kids herself. So uh, in that same verse, we see that she, in verse nine of uh, chapter 30, we see that she gave her servant, a woman named Zilpah, to Jacob. And so now more children are born, Gad and Asher. And if that's not enough weirdness and drama, it gets really strange then in chapter 30, verse 14, So in fact, I'm actually going to read this whole section to you, not because it's the most important thing in this passage, but I think it would take me longer to explain it than just to read it. So in chapter 30, starting in verse 14 and going to verse 18, we read this account. It says, In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben, so that's Leah's oldest son, went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, is it a small matter that you've taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to meet him and said, you must come in to me for I've hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night and God listened to Leah and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. So she called his name Issachar. Now a mandrake apparently is the root of a particular plant and in some traditional cultures it was thought to aid in conception. And so when Leah's son Reuben uh, comes home with a bunch of mandrakes, uh, presumably with an eye towards helping his mother with the fact she can no longer conceive, Rachel sees a solution to her woes. The problem is there's no love lost between these two sisters. There in verse 15, Leah responds sarcastically, isn't it enough that you took my husband? Now you're going to take away my mandrakes also? And so Rachel knows she's going to have to give something in order to get something. So she trades what seems to be her allotted night with her husband in exchange for some of this mandrake root. There in verse 16, the exchange is consummated and ironically, it's Leah, not Rachel, the one with the mandrakes, who becomes pregnant and she gives birth to Issachar. There in verses 19 to 21, we see that she had another son, Zebulun, and a daughter, Dinah, that is Leah, gave birth to these children. is going to become a key player in chapter 34, and a very sad story we see there. So it seems like everything has gone as badly for Rachel as it could possibly go. Her sister now is able to have children again. She's losing in this competition. We read there in verses 22 to 24 of chapter 30, "'Then God remembered Rachel, "'and God listened to her and opened her womb. "'She conceived and bore a son and said, "'God has taken away my reproach.' "'And she called his name Joseph, saying, "'May the Lord add to me another son.'" So Joseph is gonna be the center of much of the action over the last 13 chapters of Genesis. But you can see that the the stage is set for all sorts of trouble, right? You've got this family now full of kids from four different mothers, two of whom are sisters who don't like each other, one of whom is loved more by the children's father than the other, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, as we're going to see in ensuing chapters, just about everything. But let me briefly point out two things that I think we're supposed to take away from these events, from these uh, surprising narratives of pregnancies and mandrakes. Uh, first, I think in the big picture, we're meant to see that God's promise to Abraham is being fulfilled, even through all of this chaos. Remember that the Lord told Abraham in his old age, when he and Sarah were still childless, he told Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation, that they'd be more numerous than the grains of sand on the seashore. And so when Isaac, the child of promise, is in the altar, and when it looks like there's no way that this promise to Abraham could could come true, you remember the Lord came and and reiterated it. And now we see that this little line that began with Abraham and Isaac is starting to, to sort of sprout offshoots, that these children many of whom will go on to be the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel have now been established and they're gonna carry on the the line of Abraham. They're gonna be together the recipients of the promise that would continue through Jacob and his children. So God is, is showing us here that he's keeping his promise. Second, I think we're also meant to see that God's plan and God's power will always triumph over human sin and even superstition. Right, Rachel has a real problem. She can't bear children. But look at how she goes about solving it. She takes matters into her own hands repeatedly. She gives her servant to her husband as an extra wife, again, opposed to God's uh, design for marriage. Right? And, and notice that it doesn't even work. When, when she does have children, so to speak, by this servant, it doesn't satisfy her. It doesn't ultimately provide what she wanted. It doesn't take away the longing in her heart. So she begins to look to mandrakes then and some superstition to solve her problem. But do you notice what she doesn't do, at least initially? It doesn't seem like she reaches out to the Lord. It doesn't seem that she prays, at least not at first. It doesn't seem like she cries out to her maker and asks for help. There in verses one and two, of chapter 30, we get a little window into Rachel's heart. It says, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel. And he said, am I in the place of God who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? So Rachel goes to Jacob and basically demands children. And he bites back at her. Basically, you should be talking to God, not to me. And so there's a, a bitter irony there in verse 17 of chapter 30, where Rachel gets her mandrakes, but God listens to Leah, and she conceives. Apparently, Leah had been bringing her situation before the Lord, and he loved her and he helped her. So, friend, I wonder if there's a situation in your life that, that essentially blots out the sun like this childlessness did for Leah. I'm sorry, for Rachel. See, Rachel wants this so badly that life's not even worth living if she doesn't get it. So I wonder if you have something like that, a desire that's unfulfilled, a problem that doesn't seem like it's gonna be resolved. And maybe you wanna get married. Maybe you wanna have children. Maybe you want to get into a certain college, or make it onto a certain team, or or make it to retirement. You want one of your kids to turn their life around. You want this health problem to resolve itself. And So sometimes it's all you can think about. Sometimes you feel like if you don't get this thing, you're going to die. It's what fills up your mind when you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep. It's what you daydream about when you let your mind wander? If so, if you have something like that, and my guess is that we all have something like that, then I wonder what you're doing about it. Is your first instinct to take matters into your own hands, to, to hatch plans and schemes to get what you want? Do you find yourself taking out your frustration on the other people in your life, much like Rachel and, and Jacob did with each other? Are you looking for that? that magic bullet, the the mandrakes that will make your problem go away. Where do you think you can patiently take those things to the Lord? Trusting that he loves you, trusting his goodness and his power and his timing. Ultimately, we see the Lord was kind to Rachel. She didn't need to go through all of these steps and make things so much worse than they had to be. It seems at some point, Rachel, perhaps even inspired by the example of her older sister, must have begun to cry out to the Lord. Because there in verse 22 of chapter 30, it says that God remembered Rachel and God listened to her. She must have started talking to him. And he opened her womb. The Lord was the only one who could help Rachel. And he's the only one who can help us. And that brings us to our second thing to look at this morning. And that is Jacob's flocks. Uh, As I said, we'll go through this quickly as it's not too difficult to understand. Uh, There in verse 25 of chapter 30, we see that once Joseph is born, Jacob is ready to return to his homeland. He had served Laban for many years and now he wants to go home. Uh, There in verse 27, Laban tells Jacob that he'd learned by divination that the Lord had blessed him and blessed his family because of Jacob's presence. So divination is a bad way of going about getting this information, but Laban, as it turns out, isn't wrong. And we see there in verse 30 of chapter 30 that before Jacob arrived, Laban actually didn't have very much. But now because the Lord had blessed Jacob and had blessed Laban everywhere Jacob turned, his uncle was a rich man. And so now Laban wants Jacob to stay. And why wouldn't he? Jacob is his meal ticket. His golden goose Jacob is the, the husband to his daughters, the, the father to Laban's grandkids, right? If Jacob leaves, God's blessing leaves with him. If Jacob leaves, his children and grandchildren leave as well. And so there in verse 28, Laban asks Jacob to name his price. What's it going to take to get you to stay? What wages do you want? So there in verses 30 to 30, uh, 31 to 33, Jacob makes. Laban an offer. He says, actually, don't worry about wages. Just let me go through all of your flocks. I'm going to pull out the the spotted and speckled uh, and black animals, and those will be mine. You keep the ones that are totally white. In verses 34 to 36, Laban agrees, but we see that he's got a plan. He sent and had all of those animals that would be Jacob's sort of collected together and taken a three days journey away under the care of Laban's sons. So the idea is, sure, Jacob, you can have all of them. Go through my flocks and find every one, right? But they're not there anymore, right? We see Laban is still up to his deceit and trickery. But Jacob also has a plan. And it's probably even weirder than the mandrake bit in the previous chapter. And so we read about it there in verses 37 to 43. So Jacob, not one to be outdone, it says, He took fresh sticks of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white streaks in them, exposing the white of the sticks. He set the sticks that he had peeled in front of the flocks in the troughs, that is, the watering places where the flocks came to drink. And since they bred when they came to drink, the flocks bred in front of the sticks. And so the flocks brought forth striped, speckled, and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and set the faces of the flocks toward the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. He put his own droves apart and did not put them with Laban's flock. Whenever the stronger of the flock were breeding, Jacob would lay the sticks in the troughs before the eyes of the flock, that they might breed among the sticks. But for the feebler of the flock, he would not lay them there. So the feebler would be Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. Thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks, female servants and male servants and camels and donkeys." Well, that explains itself, so moving along. (laughs) Okay, so it seems like there was a common belief in those days that if animals saw something bright or vivid while they were in the process of mating, the offspring that were conceived would be marked by that, that vivid sight and that that marking would be in their flesh. They would be speckled or spotted. The idea was that if you saw a spotted animal, the explanation for those spots was that the parents must have seen something sort of shocking or vivid while they were in the process of mating. And so Jacob puts these bright white peeled sticks at the troughs where he wants the stronger animals to mate in order to produce animals that he can claim as his own. And the only thing stranger than that is that it actually worked. Because there in verse 43, we see, thus the man increased greatly and had large flocks. Now, we know that peeled sticks don't have anything to do with anything. But all this prosperity that Jacob gets comes directly from the Lord. In, in chapter 31, Jacob recognizes this. I think it's helpful to, to read this bit about sort of streaked sticks in light of what Jacob says in chapter 31, verses 6 to 12. Here Jacob is is talking to Rachel and Leah. And he says, you know that I served your father with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages 10 times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. And if he said the striped shall be your wages, then all this flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob. And I said, Here I am. And he said, Lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. Right, whatever the business with the sticks is, Jacob understands, and this dream that he receives from the Lord reveals to him that, that it's actually the blessing of the Lord. It's not any sort of superstitious eugenics going on, but it's God's blessing that accounts for Jacob's wealth. Uh, Jacob was taught that all that he had, all that he'd received, came from the Lord. Friend, I wonder if you're able to see that whatever blessings you have in your life also come from the Lord, right? If you're a follower of Christ, you know that every good and perfect gift comes from your heavenly Father, right? We, we see that in James chapter one, verse 17. You know that you don't have anything that you didn't receive as a gift, as Paul reminds the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. And even if you're not a Christian, I imagine you can muster the humility required to acknowledge that you actually have very little power and very little control to secure the many blessings that you enjoy every day. You know that ultimately you have no power to preserve your health or to cause the earth to produce, to keep markets stable or the sun shining. So why do you think it is that God has given you those many kindnesses? Uh, Because you're so great? Because you've figured out so many things? Or do you think that perhaps God has showered you with all sorts of kindness so that you might follow those gifts, that sort of trail of gifts, back to their giver? Or do you think God has caused his Son to shine on you so that you can trace the rays of his kindness back to the sun? That you might seek him? That you might even find him? For the Bible is clear that the The blessings we have come from the Lord and are meant to point us to him. And again, the big picture here is that God is keeping his promise. He's blessing the nations through the seed of Abraham. Laban, like Potiphar and Pharaoh and Darius and Xerxes and Cyrus after him, Laban here is blessed because of the presence of Abraham's offspring with him. And Jacob is blessed because of the Lord's kindness. That brings us to our third thing to see this morning, and that is Jacob's flight. And we'll see this in chapter 31. Here in this chapter, we see Jacob fleeing from Laban's country and heading home. So there, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 31, we read the action starts. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he acquired in Paddan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. So Jacob takes off with everything that he's got and all of his family. And eventually, the, the situation resolves itself. Laban catches up to Jacob, and they settle into something like an uneasy truce, a sort of unfriendly covenant, where neither one of them particularly trusts or respects the other. We see the conclusion of the matter there, beginning in verse 44. This is how they leave it. Laban says to Jacob, Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar, Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. Now, he doesn't mean that in a friendly way, but in a sort of menacing way. He goes on to say, If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, rich irony there, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and pillar which I've set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham... And the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So there not really departing as friends, but Laban admits here there's really ultimately nothing he can do, and we'll see why in a second. And so he calls, oddly enough, on Jacob's God to watch between them, to hold Jacob accountable if he were to mistreat his daughters or to take other wives. As I mentioned, there's some rich irony in that, as Laban was the reason that Jacob took extra wives to begin with. but. In the big picture, this chapter in Jacob's life is now behind him. He's left Laban's country. His attention now returns to his homeland, to an impending encounter with a brother who probably wants to kill him. But with the rest of our time this morning, I want us to look at this flight of Jacob and all of his people from Laban's country. I want to look at this flight in in light of the rest of the Bible and its story. Because what might seem like a fairly unremarkable story of a man spat with his father-in-law and his subsequent decision to, to set off with his family, it's actually a fairly significant example of a very important theme in the history of God's redemption of his people. And I think we get a hint about the larger meaning of these events in the book of the prophet Hosea, written many, many centuries later. We read in Hosea chapter 12 that the prophet reflected on Jacob's flight from Laban here in Genesis 31, and he said this. He said, Jacob, this is Hosea 12, verses 12 to 13. He says, Jacob fled to the land of Aram, and there Israel, that's another name for Jacob, served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, And by a prophet, he was guarded. You see, Hosea sees in Jacob's flight from Laban a a foreshadowing or or maybe an echo of Israel's flight from slavery in Egypt many centuries later. He puts these events next to each other in his recounting of God's redemptive plan. So we're going to see, Lord willing, in the book of Genesis that Jacob's descendants go down to Egypt. And when Genesis closes and the next book of the Bible, Exodus, opens, uh, Israel, Jacob's descendants, are actually enslaved there. They're being oppressed by Pharaoh. And the book of Exodus records for us the way that God intervenes and is faithful to his promise to Abraham. And he delivers Abraham's offspring from their servitude. And so let me give you seven things. There may be more, but there's at least seven things here that Moses is showing us in chapter 31 about Jacob leaving Laban and going back home. Seven things that Moses highlights for us that that, um, echo the exodus of Israel from slavery in Egypt. First, we see that the prosperity of God's people makes them the object of envy and hatred. So when the book of Exodus opens, there is a new Pharaoh, and he's worried about the Hebrew people. He's worried about the people of Israel. They've become too numerous. They are too fruitful. And so he inflicts hard labor on them. What we read at the beginning of chapter 31 in verses 1 to 2. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. So there's a parallel here. Jacob was hated because of the prosperity that God had given him, and so were the people of Israel in Egypt. Second, we see that God was attentive to the suffering of his people. Their troubles didn't go unnoticed. One of the most important statements in the book of Exodus comes at the end of chapter two. In verses 23 to 25, it says, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw the people of Israel, and God knew And it seems like there's a parallel passage here in Genesis 31 beginning in verse 38. If you read there going down to verse 42, here Jacob pours out his troubles and his suffering to Laban. He says, these 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried, I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you, I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me and the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I've been in your house. I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock and you've changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. And listen, God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands, and rebuked you last night. Did you catch that? Jacob, he describes his service to Laban almost in terms of slavery. But he says God saw, God knew, God was aware of his people's trouble. Third, this departure begins With the call of the Lord in Exodus, we see the Lord sends Moses to tell the people of Israel that it's time to go. He sends Moses to tell Pharaoh to let them go. And in a similar way, in chapter 31, we see it's the Lord who initiates Jacob's flight. In verse 3, we read, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. Again, in verse 13, we see that God tells him, Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. So both flights, Israel leaving Egypt and Jacob leaving Laban's uh, country, begin with the Lord calling. Fourth, we see in both examples there's a plundering of the oppressor. In Exodus, we read the people of Israel left slavery in Egypt, heading to the land of Canaan, and they did so with their arms full of the treasures of Egypt. And in a similar way, chapter 31 shows us Jacob leaving Laban's land with great wealth. There in verse 9, he tells Leah and Rachel, Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given it to me. There in verse 43, Laban complains that all that Jacob has really belongs to him, including his wife and children. The the picture is that the oppressor has been repaid. He's lost everything. And it's been given to Jacob. Fifth, and this will be quick, but but we see in each example a, a crossing of great bodies of water. Israel leaves Egypt and they famously have to go through the Red Sea. As Jacob's family flees Laban, Moses makes sure to point out to us there in verse 21 that they have to cross the river Euphrates. Sixth example, there's a pursuit. Pharaoh and his army famously pursue the people of Israel to return them to slavery. But the Lord intervenes and drowns them in the sea. In a similar way, we see Laban chasing after Jacob and his family. We read there in verse 22 of chapter 31. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So Laban charges after Jacob and his family. He seems to have enough firepower and force to to return Jacob to his servitude, but the Lord intervenes and tells Laban uh, not to speak to Jacob, either good or bad. And then seventh, finally, the seventh kind of obvious parallel here is the triumph of the Lord over the idols of the oppressors. The Exodus narrative is in many ways a polemic against the so-called gods of Egypt. Each of the famous 10 plagues that God poured out on Egypt were specifically aimed at showing the impotence of and the uselessness of the gods of Egypt. They worshiped the Nile, so God's like, all right, let's turn it to blood. They worshiped the sun, so God said, how about if I turn that out for a couple days? and so on and so on and so on. God is demonstrating that he alone is God and that the gods of Egypt are nothing. In a similar way, this flight from, of Jacob's family makes a, a mockery of the household idols that Laban worshiped and depended on. There in verse 19, we see Rachel stole them, probably because in those days, possession of the household idols was an indication that you had a right to the family inheritance. But the scene here is almost comic these so-called called called gods are are carried off. They're hidden from Laban, who's desperate to get them back while Rachel sits on them as they're under her saddle. Uh, Laban looking for them desperately there in verse 35, he can't find them, right? And the contrast couldn't be sharper. Idols need you to search for them. You have to find them. Whereas the true God is the one who finds his people and acts powerfully to deliver them. So you have at least these seven echoes here in chapter 31, foreshadowing the Exodus narrative that is to come. Too many, I think, for this to be unintentional. Too many, I think, for this to be coincidence or insignificant. And I think what we see is that God weaves these kinds of themes all throughout the Bible in order to give us a sense of what his salvation looks like. So over and over again, we see God delivering his people from bondage, from servitude, from oppression, bringing them out of slavery and into a land of freedom. So we see it here with Jacob. We see it with the Israelites in Egypt. We see it with the people of Judah when they're in exile. Over and over and over, the Lord saves his people in this similar way. And so I think we're meant to learn something from chapter 31 and Jacob's flight here about the way God saves his people. And so as we conclude, I just wanna finish by teasing this out a bit. Because if you've experienced God's grace in Christ, then perhaps you can see how your story maps on to the story of Jacob that we've been considering this morning. You see, we are all by nature, spiritually speaking, in the place where chapter 31 opens. We're stuck, we're trapped. We lack the the resources to secure our freedom. We are slaves, not to the service of Laban or some tyrannical king, but the Bible says we're slaves to sin. We are born into heavy service, service to self-will and self-love, Those things become a controlling taskmaster in our lives at some point. And eventually we become hopelessly stuck. I mean, just think about your own life. Think about the bad habits that you can't change. Think about the unhealthy patterns and responses that your family seems to pass down from generation to generation. Think about desires that spring up in you unbidden, that that lead you to do things you don't really want to do. Think about how easy it is, how effortless it is to get angry with the people in your life. Think about how natural it is to respond with pride when someone crosses you or corrects you. Uh, think about how smoothly you slide into being judgmental. How you don't have to be taught to think about yourself first. All right, we could just keep going all morning. There's no way out of that. We're trapped. Every bit as much as Jacob was trapped in uh, Laban's country. Every bit as much as the Israelites were trapped in Egypt. But the good news, is, this isn't a story about slavery. This is a story about redemption. And just as God brought Jacob out of Aram, just as God brought Israel out of slavery in Egypt, just as God brought Judah out of exile in Babylon, Just as he's accomplished all of those acts of deliverance, he has accomplished a greater and a final exodus. He has brought his people out of slavery to sin and death through the the death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus. Let me just point you to two places in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life that I think make this clear. In John chapter 8, we read about a conversation that Jesus had with some of his Jewish disciples. These are descendants of Abraham. These are Jacob's offspring. And we read there in John chapter 8, starting in verse 31. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then in verse 36, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, Jesus is casting himself as the one who sets God's people free from slavery. Not slavery to Laban, not slavery to Pharaoh but slavery to sin, slavery to the controlling passions of our sinful nature. Jesus, he says, sets his people free in deed. The second passage I want to look at is in Luke chapter 9. Here we read an account of Jesus' transfiguration, where, if you will, the veil of his humanity is for a second peeled back, and the disciples are able to get a glimpse of Jesus' divine glory. And we read there about Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 29. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That word in Greek is exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Jesus is spoke, speaking to Moses and Elijah, and what are they talking about? His exodus that he was about to accomplish. Then, as we continue on in Luke chapter 9, what we see is that Jesus, we're told, immediately sets his face to go to Jerusalem to die. That's how this exodus is going to be accomplished. On the cross, Jesus is going to pay the price for our ransom, our redemption from slavery. It's there that Jesus took on himself everything that was keeping us as slaves, the penalty and the power of sin. And Jesus rose from the dead in triumph over all of those things. And in Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says that he ascended into heaven, leading, as it were, a, a host of former captives, now free in his train. Jesus leads his people now in a triumphant departure to a new world, a new heaven, and a new earth. So friends, I know we've been at this for a little while, so maybe your attention is flagging. Maybe your phone is buzzing, people are texting, and so you've gotten a bit distracted. So if that's, if that's happened, we're cool, but I, I want you back for just a few minutes. Don't miss out on what the Lord is saying to you today through his word. Because listen, if you're not a follower of Christ, God is freely offering you this redemption today. You cannot deliver yourself any more than Jacob knew how to get away from Laban on his own. But if you'll turn your back on sin, and if you will put your trust in Christ, he will set you free. And if you are a follower of Christ, then it is so important that you see that this redemption, this deliverance, this exodus that you have experienced is the foundation then for all of the commands that God gives you for your life. I think most of the problems that people have in their Christian life, most of the ways we struggle with obedience to the Lord, most of the ways that we're tempted, if we're honest, sometimes to chafe under God's moral law and the ethical demands of the Bible, most of those struggles come because we get this dynamic wrong. Right, think about the Ten Commandments. Maybe you think about the Ten Commandments, and, and, and you wouldn't say it out loud, but if you're really being honest, the, the response of your heart is, ugh, so many rules. Why do I have to honor my parents? Why can't I lie every once in a while, or, or covet just a little? But friend, do you remember how God begins the Ten Commandments? He doesn't begin it with, you shall have no other gods before me, though, though that's important. No, Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, the beginning of the Ten Commandments goes like this I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land, the house of slavery. Friend, only then do we get some commands. God is not saying to you, keep the rules and we'll have a relationship. He's saying, we have a relationship at my initiative because of my power, my love, my goodness, my deliverance, because of what I've done to save you when you couldn't save yourself. Now, now that you're free, here's how you should live. Here are the moral and ethical demands of a life lived as a free person in God's kingdom. Here's how you shed the bad habits and practices that are associated with slavery. Here's the way we live, in God's country, when we're free from sin's tyranny. You see, if you get the cart of obedience in front of the horse of redemption, everything's going to be wrong. Everything's going to be off. You're always going to be trying to obey just enough to get God off your back and to make him happy with you and to earn your salvation. But friends, if you stare long and hard into the way that God has accomplished in Exodus in your life, if you see clearly the, pay, the price he paid to deliver you from a tyrant far worse than Laban, far worse than Pharaoh, if you really understand that God loves you like that, then you'll begin to see that the way he calls you to live is not a burden, but it's actually a gift. It's actually part of your salvation. And so friends, as we come to the Lord's table, we come to do just that, to stare long and hard into the way that God has accomplished an exodus for his people. We come to the table to contemplate the price that the Lord Jesus paid on the cross so that we could have real freedom. And so let's go together to the Lord's table now. But first, we'll pray and we'll sing, and then we'll celebrate. Let's pray. Oh, gracious Father, we rejoice in your kindness and in your love that while we were still sinners, while we were enslaved, while we were controlled by the passions of our flesh, while we had no love and no desire for you, you sought us. Father, you are not like the gods of the nations who need to be tracked down by your people, but you came for us. You sent the Lord Jesus, the one who came to seek and save the lost, to die for us. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would help us to understand in ever-increasing measure what it means that you've set us free. Spirit, would you help us to live as free people? Would you help us to delight in your ways? And we pray all of these things for our joy and for the glory of our Lord Jesus. In his name, amen.